0: This episode features racially sensitive language and discussions of murder, domestic violence, and racism that some people may find disturbing. We advise caution for listeners under 13.
1: One March morning in 1995, a Los Angeles Superior courtroom found Detective Mark Furman taking the witness stand. It was the O.J. Simpson murder trial. While searching Simpson's house, He'd found the infamous Bloody right glove. Now, his testimony was crucial to connect Simpson to the scene of the crime.
0: But his cross-examiner knew he could discredit Furman, a police veteran with skeletons in his closet.
1: Attorney Effley Bailey coaxed Furman to admit that he'd been alone when he found the glove. He'd split off from the three other detectives at the scene, meaning no one could verify his story of how he'd located it.
0: Bailey heavily suggested that Furman had framed Simpson.
1: Furman denied it. But Bailey didn't drop the issue. He thought he could prove Furman had violated Simpson's rights, and he had motive to do so. Bailey asked the detective if he'd ever used the N-word to describe black people in the past decade. Furman said no, he hadn't.
0: But he was lying, under oath, which led many to wonder if he was keeping other secrets, too. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from ParCast.
1: You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify.
0: This is our second episode on the O.J. Simpson murder trial. Prosecutors charged the NFL Hall of Famer with murdering his ex-wife, Nicole Brown Simpson, and her friend,
1: Ron Goldman. Last episode, we talked about the DNA evidence that directly linked Simpson to the crime scene. His lawyers suggested the police mishandled it, spurring a jury to acquit him of all the charges.
0: Today, we'll explore the most prominent conspiracy theory involving O.J. Simpson, that racist police officers planted evidence to frame him for the murders of Brown and Goldman.
1: We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us.
0: This episode is brought to you by Terminix, There's one thing we can all agree on. Dealing with pests is a pain. But luckily, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. So if your home or business has pests, don't stress it, Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X dot com. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened, I'm okay, other people have it worse, it doesn't matter much, and through therapy was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd started to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P
2: dot slash conspiracy.
1: In June of 1994, one of the greatest football players of all time was accused of a double murder.
0: Sports fans couldn't square the charismatic, always-smiling Simpson with the prosecution's portrayal of him, a killer who'd stabbed his ex-wife in a fit of jealous rage.
1: But the DNA evidence was overwhelming odds were one in 6.8 billion that the blood police found on a sock in Simpson's bedroom came from anyone besides Nicole Brown Simpson.
0: In light of the overwhelming incriminating evidence, many were shocked to see Simpson walk free over a year after his arrest.
1: But jurors had reasoning behind finding him not guilty. One of the officers who'd arrested him had a racist past. And according to Simpson's lawyers, he was part of a larger pattern. They said the Los Angeles Police Department, or LAPD, routinely mistreated Black people.
0: This is the basis of the conspiracy theory that we'll cover throughout this episode, that LAPD officers planted evidence in a plot to frame O.J. Simpson for murder.
1: The LAPD has grappled with the history of alleged bigotry for decades. Throughout the 20th century, cops often arbitrarily stopped and searched law-abiding black citizens on the street. Sometimes, they even beat them.
0: This brutality culminated in the infamous Rodney King incident, in which four police officers were acquitted after brutally assaulting an unarmed black man. The case seemed to demonstrate that a Los Angeles police officer could get away with anything, even one with a past as troubled as Detective Mark Furman's.
1: Furman joined the LAPD in 1975. Two years later, in 1977, he worked in majority Black and Latino communities in East Los Angeles.
0: He didn't seem to enjoy the beat. He gave off the impression that he was angry about his assignment In fact, he bragged about using excessive force against suspects and told his doctor he had a, quote, "...urge to kill people that upset me."
1: End quote. In 1987, a black teenager named Joseph Britton filed a lawsuit against the LAPD. Furman and his partner had arrested him for robbery, and Britton complained that the cops had shouted racial epithets at him. He also claimed they'd planted a knife at Britton's feet to justify shooting at him when he tried to flee. Given Furman's history,
0: it's not too hard to think that the detective might have mishandled the O.J. Simpson murder investigation, too, especially because Furman may have had a personal grudge against the footballer.
1: In 1985, nine years before Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman's murder, Furman responded to a domestic violence call at Simpson's house. He arrived to see Simpson standing near his driveway holding a baseball bat.
0: Meanwhile, Nicole cowered and cried atop a car with a shattered window. Furman asked Simpson to put the bat down. When he didn't comply, Furman repeated the request.
1: Eventually, Simpson agreed to drop the weapon. Satisfied that she wasn't in immediate danger, Furman coaxed Nicole off the car and asked if she wanted to file a police report. She declined. Apparently, Furman was frustrated with that answer. He told her, quote, "It's your life."
0: That incident may have been fresh in Furman's mind the night of Nicole and Ron Goldman's murder. Perhaps he wondered if their lives could have been spared if he'd pushed harder for her to press charges all those years ago. After all, it apparently didn't take long for him to conclude that Simpson had done it.
1: Furman left the murder scene and drove to Simpson's house to inform him that his ex wife was dead. As soon as he arrived, he noticed a small blood stain on Simpson's white Ford Bronco.
0: Right afterward, Furman climbed over a brick wall to enter Simpson's property. Then he opened the gate to let three of his colleagues in. This was despite the fact that they didn't have a warrant or legal permission to be there.
1: Officially, Furman broke in because after he saw the blood, he claimed he was afraid that Simpson might have been in danger. But some believe this was an excuse to justify a warrantless search.
0: While the other detectives were in the house, Furman went outside, alone, and walked down a dark pathway. Nobody was around when he reportedly spotted the blood-soaked glove.
1: Which means nobody can verify Furman's account of where and how he found it.
0: Furman seemingly had the perfect opportunity to plant the glove at Simpson's mansion. He might have picked it up at Nicole's condo, and left it to incriminate the former NFL star.
1: This wasn't the only suspicious detail about Furman's role in the investigation. Before the trial began, even before jury selections, news outlets across the country published articles about the officer's history, including the allegations about his racist policing. Once the story circulated, more people came forward with testimony about Furman's behavior. A real
0: estate agent named Kathleen Bell wrote a letter to Simpson's lawyers. She worked above a marine recruiting station where Furman often visited his buddies. From her office, she sometimes overheard Furman bragging about his misbehavior.
1: Bell said Furman boasted about pulling over black men if he saw them driving with a white woman, even if they hadn't done anything wrong.
0: Simpson and Nicole had an interracial marriage. His defenders claim that Furman might have resented the relationship, maybe enough to frame Simpson.
1: Furman denied all those allegations. On the stand, he admitted that he had a history of racial insensitivity, but he said he'd put his bigotry behind him. As if trying to prove it, he even claimed that he hadn't used the N word in the past 10 years.
0: Simpson's defense lawyers didn't buy that story. They figured Furman perjured himself, meaning he'd willfully lied under oath. They just didn't have any concrete proof. Until Laura
1: Hart McKinney came along. McKinney was a screenwriter who'd worked on a script about female police officers in 1985. Furman had agreed to serve as a consultant for the screenplay and to let her record their conversations.
0: Over about 12 hours of taped interviews, Furman told McKinney stories about his experiences as a cop. From what we know, some of them were probably true. Others must have been exaggerated. But Furman often digressed into racist rants. Across all the tapes, he said the N-word 41 times. He also spoke of instances where he and fellow officers brutally tortured suspects and then covered up their cruel beatings.
1: It's almost certain Furman was embellishing these stories to entertain McKinney. After the tapes came to light, the LA Public Defender's Office investigated McKinney's recordings and concluded that Furman had exaggerated his accounts. Nonetheless,
0: Simpson's lawyers played the clips in court on September 6, 1995. The jury heard the detective say the N-word on tape after he testified that he hadn't used the slur. Furman had been caught lying under oath. His lawyer advised him not to testify anymore,
1: but he still had to take the stand one last time. Simpson's lawyer asked Furman if he'd planted or manufactured evidence related to Nicole and Goldman's murders, and the disgraced officer pleaded the Fifth Amendment, asserting his right to remain silent it meant that Furman opted not to give any further testimony that could have potentially incriminated him.
0: In other words, he didn't say he fabricated evidence, but he didn't deny it either. The stunning non-answer left room for jurors to speculate that he actually may have planted the glove. And if he tampered with one clue, the rest of the evidence was also called into question.
1: Coming up irregularities in the LAPD's investigation pile up.
0: Hi there, it's Carter from ParCast. If you haven't had a chance to check out the riveting true crime series Solved Murders, there's no better time to tune in. Throughout the month of August, Solved Murders is featuring four celebrations that took a turn for the deadly in a special series we're calling Party Fowls from a murder in the New York nightclub scene and the house party gone horribly wrong to a terrifying evening at the Tate residence and a sex party with sinister results, go deeper inside four affairs remembered for all the wrong reasons. And if you like what you hear with party fouls and want to uncover more of history's most captivating cases, be sure to follow Solved Murders on Spotify. There, you'll find a new episode released every Wednesday. Solved Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. Listen free only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Terminix.
1: Now, back to the story.
0: The 1995 O.J. Simpson murder trial spotlighted alleged racism within the LAPD. Simpson's lawyers argued that bigoted police officers had conspired against him. They pointed to Mark Furman's history of racial insensitivity and odd discrepancies in the investigation, like the fact that four police officers had even shown up at Simpson's house in the first place.
1: Detective Philip Van Adder testified that he and his team had driven to Simpson's mansion as a courtesy. They wanted to let the celebrity know that his ex-wife was dead before he found out from the impending news coverage.
0: But Simpson's lawyers countered
1: that they didn't have to show up in person. They could have just called. The police argued that a home visit was much more personable. This was the sort of news you delivered in person.
0: Of course, when the police arrived, Detective Furman found blood on Simpson's car. As we mentioned before, the officers justified their subsequent warrantless investigation on the grounds that they thought Simpson was in danger.
1: Generally speaking, police cannot search private property without a warrant. But there are exceptions, including something called exigent circumstances. This means the authorities can enter your home if they think people are in immediate danger.
0: For example, if someone inside an apartment screams help, a nearby officer can enter the premises without waiting for authorization.
1: Or if they see blood outside a house and think there may be injured people inside, they have the legal authority to break in.
0: But the police didn't have any specific reason to think Simpson was in immediate peril besides the blood on his car. And that could have come from a minor cut or scrape, They didn't even test to make sure the red smears really were blood and not ketchup or hot sauce.
1: Simpson's lawyers argued that the police never really believed Simpson was in danger and had gathered evidence unlawfully. Johnny Cochran, a civil rights attorney who represented Simpson, outlined his suspicion on the Today Show before the trial started.
0: He alleged that the police went to Simpson's house, quote, looking for suspects, and they created this fanciful justification for their having gone over the wall after the fact. These officers had the Fourth Amendment backward, search first, then ask permission, end quote.
1: Cochran suggested the police were too quick to blame Simpson for the murders, and that made them overly eager to prove their hunch. Supposedly, they gathered the evidence that supported their theory while ignoring any clues that suggested otherwise.
0: He then pointed to the way that police treated Simpson when they questioned him on June 13, 1994. A patrol officer went to Simpson's home to pick him up, guided him into the backyard, and then handcuffed him even though he wasn't under arrest.
1: A news cameraman caught it on tape. This isn't standard practice, especially since Simpson was cooperative. Police officials later admitted they'd been wrong to handcuff him. But their behavior demonstrated that they were treating Simpson like a suspect long before they made any accusations against him.
0: A Los Angeles Sentinel reporter named Dennis Schatzman argued that the cuffing demonstrated a racist double standard of how law enforcement treats criminal suspects. He pointed out that Jeffrey Dahmer, a white convicted serial killer, was never handcuffed in public.
1: It's possible that racial prejudice swayed the investigation, but that doesn't mean Simpson was innocent. Just look at the wealth of DNA evidence that connected him to the crime. Police found bloodstains at Nicole and Simpson's homes, plus in his white Bronco. Lab tests matched those droplets to Nicole Brown Simpson— Ron Goldman, and O.J. Simpson's blood types.
0: Assuming we can trust those results, Barry Sheck, one of Simpson's trial lawyers, alleged that the incriminating droplets may have been
1: planted. That might sound like a bold allegation, but we do know the forensic teams didn't follow proper procedure when gathering blood samples.
0: LAPD criminalist Dennis Fung collected specimens at Nicole's condo and Simpson's house. On the stand, Fung insisted he never handled evidence with his bare hands, but Shaq played video footage in which he wasn't wearing gloves, which meant that Fung could have cross-contaminated samples and invalidated the DNA testing.
1: Sheck also revealed that Fung had worked closely with an inexperienced junior colleague. The Nicole Brown Simpson murder was only her third crime scene. She made mistakes and didn't always switch out gloves before touching different samples.
0: In addition, a detective dragged a blanket out of Nicole's condo, then later used it to cover her body. This may have transferred fibers from inside the house to the scene
1: of the murders. Fung admitted that this was a terrible mistake. The police broke protocol while examining the evidence.
0: Which also makes it seem more likely that they had the opportunity to manipulate the crime scene and make Simpson look guilty. One of the most suspicious discrepancies involved the back gate of Nicole's house there was a small, easy to miss red droplet near the handle. DNA tests showed there was a one in 57 billion chance that the blood belonged to anyone besides O.J. Simpson.
1: But Fung didn't collect that sample until July 3rd, 1994, three weeks after the murders. Fung said he'd missed it the first time around.
0: However, his forensics tests showed something puzzling. Even though he collected this blood long after the other samples, its DNA was less degraded than other samples. If it had been left sitting outside for three weeks, in the summer no less, it should have been more deteriorated than the evidence that was collected immediately after the murder. Unless it was
1: planted. Simpson had willingly given the police a blood sample to compare against the droplets found at the crime scene. Sheck insinuated that the LAPD could have taken that sample and then smeared it on the back gate.
0: To corroborate those claims, Sheck showed a picture of the back gate from when Fung identified the smudge on July 3rd. The droplet was there, clear as day. Then he showed a photo of the gate from June 13th, the day after the murder. There was no visible blood.
1: To be fair, the earlier photo was zoomed in and grainy. The stain might have been there, but it may have been too small or out of focus for the camera to pick up.
0: Maybe, but an expert testified that the blood on the gate contained EDTA. This is a chemical preservative that specialists added to the sample they drew from Simpson.
1: The defense argued EDTA had no business being at a crime scene.
0: Sheck backed this allegation up with testimony from Thano Paradis, a police nurse who took Simpson's sample. Paradis claimed he drew 8 millimeters of blood from the suspect, but when Sheck later reviewed all the tests, he
1: found that only 6.5 milliliters were accounted for he used that 1.5 milliliter discrepancy as evidence that a cop could have taken the excess blood and sprinkled it throughout the crime scene.
0: And there was good reason to suspect that Detective Philip Van Adder did it. He admitted to taking Simpson's sample from the testing center and putting it in a manila envelope. Then he drove
1: it directly to Simpson's house. He said he wanted to hand-deliver it to Fung. But it wasn't common practice for police officers to carry samples on-site to crime scenes. Van Adder testified that he didn't think he'd ever done something like this before.
0: Even Detective Mark Furman recognized how suspicious that behavior looked. In the ESPN documentary miniseries O.J. Made in America, Furman exclaimed, quote, You're bringing the suspect's blood back to a crime scene where we're collecting blood? Really?
1: At best, this was a massive error in judgment on Van Adder's part.
0: And at worst, it was proof of an attempted frame-up.
1: Coming up, we'll weigh in on whether the LAPD planted evidence to incriminate O.J. Simpson.
2: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness.
0: In 1995, O.J. Simpson's lawyers alleged that racist police officers had planted evidence to frame their client. First, they spotlighted Detective Mark Furman and his history of problematic behavior. Then they poked holes in the DNA evidence found at the two crime scenes, Nicole's condo and
1: Simpson's estate. The allegations may sound outlandish, but remember... In a criminal case, prosecutors need to prove someone is guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. It's a high bar to clear.
0: By the time they delivered their verdict on October 3rd, 1995, jurors had plenty of
1: doubt, which was why Simpson walked free. You could attribute his acquittal to honest mistakes the police officers made. The cops admitted they didn't follow proper procedure when handling evidence. But possible incompetence is not evidence of an intentional conspiracy.
0: True. However, the LAPD had a long history of racist policing, and jurors could reasonably conclude that Mark Furman was bigoted.
1: However, his possible racist views weren't proof that he planted a bloody glove on Simpson's property. Simpson's lawyers didn't provide any physical evidence or eyewitness testimony to demonstrate that anyone tampered with the glove. And even if Furman did plant it, he would have had to get it from somewhere. There's no indication of where he first picked it up.
0: Simpson's lawyers suggested there might have been two gloves at Nicole's and Goldman's crime scene— Furman could have snuck one into a plastic bag and then
1: brought it to Simpson's house. But Furman was far from the first police officer to show up at Nicole's condo. And all of the other officers reported seeing only one glove. Plus, Lieutenant Frank Spangler testified that he was with Furman practically the whole time he would have noticed if the detective had pocketed evidence.
0: But if there's anything to learn from this case, it's that we can't always take police testimony at face value. Furman committed perjury during the trial.
1: Furman was a flawed witness, but that still doesn't mean he planted evidence. Even if he'd wanted to frame Simpson, he didn't have any reason to think it would work. At the time this was unfolding, he didn't know if Simpson had an alibi. If Simpson had been able to prove his innocence, then any evidence Furman may have planted at his house would have been useless. And if the detective had tampered with the investigation, he could have made it harder for the police to find the real killer. The logistics of this supposed frame job just don't make sense. Still, Furman invoked the
0: Fifth Amendment when asked if he'd planted evidence in the case. He could have denied the
1: allegation if
0: there was nothing to
1: hide. But it's important to note that people use the 5th to avoid self-incrimination. It shouldn't be interpreted as an admission of guilt. Because Furman had already perjured himself, there was nothing to gain and everything to lose in giving any more witness testimony.
0: Of course, Furman wasn't the only cop who could have planted something. Dennis Fong, the LAPD criminalist, admitted to mishandling DNA at the crime scene, and he failed to use fresh gloves
1: while touching evidence. Those incidents could have been lapses in judgment, not a conspiracy. As we mentioned before, at least one of the investigators was highly inexperienced. She was probably put on the case because the LAPD's Scientific Investigative Division was underfunded and its staff wasn't properly trained.
0: But there's still the blood on the back gate. Like we mentioned before, Barry Sheck claimed it was more degraded than samples that had been collected three weeks
1: earlier. There's a plausible explanation for that. Fung made another mistake.
0: After he collected the samples the day after the murder, Fung put them in an unair conditioned truck for a few hours. The humidity probably affected their quality.
1: So the blood on the back gate wasn't necessarily fresher because police planted it. It had spent weeks on a clean surface in a shaded area and didn't degrade as quickly as the samples that had overheated.
0: That's assuming that the blood really was on the gate that long. Even if the smudge was too small to show up on camera, you'd think that professional criminalists would have spotted it earlier in the investigation.
1: In fact, several officers did see the blood— even if Fung initially missed it. Officer Robert Risky was the first to show up to Nicole's house when she was killed. He spotted the smudge and pointed it out to Furman. A handful of other police officers maintained that they also saw the blood on the back gate. As for the EDTA in the blood, FBI special agent Roger Martz testified that he didn't find any significant quantities of the preservative in the sample. There were traces, but most people have some degree of naturally occurring EDTA in their bloodstream. There are small amounts in a lot of things we eat, including the ingredients used in the 90s to make a McDonald's Big Mac, which Simpson ate the night of the murders.
0: The missing blood is still an issue. Remember, Nurse Paradis, who took Simpson's sample, said he drew 8 milliliters, but only 6.5 were accounted for. It's odd the police can't account for the remaining 1.5 milliliters.
1: For context, that's about a third of a teaspoon. Paratus testified that he might have drawn 6.5 milliliters, but rounded it up to 8 in the paperwork. He figured a 1 to 2 millimeter difference was negligible.
0: That assumption may have been a mistake, but it was one of many. The police mishandled the Simpson investigation time after time, So much so, it's no surprise that he was found not guilty.
1: That said, there's a mountain of evidence implicating Simpson. Blood that appeared to be his was scattered around Nicole's condo, and in his car, and in and around his house, and there was far more than 1.5 milliliters of it.
0: Fibers matching Simpson's hair were on Goldman's clothes. Shoe print analysis linked his feet to the murder scene, And we can't ignore the bloody pair of gloves found at both Nicole and Simpson's houses.
1: Finally, Simpson didn't have a solid alibi for the time frame when the murders occurred. There's too much incriminating evidence against Simpson to buy the theory that the police could have framed him. Which is why on a scale of 1 to 10, with 1 meaning unbelievable and 10 as the definitive truth, I'm giving this conspiracy theory a 1 out of 10.
0: I agree that the cops probably didn't plant evidence, but we know Detective Furman had motive to take Simpson down, and the warrantless search feels pretty suspicious. Combined with the mishandling of evidence, it's enough for me to give this theory a two out of 10.
1: The O.J. Simpson saga was one of the biggest American news stories of all time. Los Angeles police arrested a beloved celebrity for double murder. Then he walked free, in spite of the abundant incriminating evidence.
0: This may be why there are dozens of other conspiracy theories about this case, which we haven't had time to cover. Some people think Simpson's son Jason murdered Nicole. Others assume Simpson had CTE, a brain disease common in football players, which contributed to a violent streak that may have been tied to the killings.
1: Johnny Cochran alleged that a Colombian drug cartel murdered Nicole and Goldman. Others blamed a white supremacist organization called the Aryan Brotherhood. A convicted serial killer named Glenn Rogers insists that Simpson hired him as a hitman.
0: The problem with most of these theories, though, is that there's too much evidence incriminating Simpson. The narrative in which LAPD officers planted incriminating clues is the only one that tries to explain how it all got to the crime scene.
1: The cops probably didn't frame O.J. Simpson, but these suspicions stem from many black Americans' genuine mistrust of law enforcement. More than two decades after the infamous case, many people are still wary of the police and their power, which may be why the O.J. Simpson story continues to endure today.
0: Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back next time with a new episode.
1: Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story.
0: And the official story isn't always the truth.
1: Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Jackson Knapp, with writing assistance by Angela Jorgensen and Mackenzie Moore. Fact-checking by Anya Barely and research by Bradley Klein. Conspiracy Theories stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy.
0: Hi listeners, it's Carter. Here's a quick reminder to check out the Solved Murders four-part special Party Fowls. Every Wednesday in August, take a closer look at four celebrations that ended in horrific fashion. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Solved Murders. Listen free only on Spotify.